Welcome everyone to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you will find real Asian American conversations, including subjects you are too embarrassed or afraid to ask your Asian parents about. I'm your host, Sasha Fu, and we have a special guest joining us today. His name is Matthew Ozawa, and he is a big deal in the world of opera. As an opera director, he is one of the very few Asian American opera directors in the United States. Matthew is of Japanese ancestry. He was born in the Los Angeles area, went to grade school in San Diego, and when he was in his teens, he moved with his family to Singapore. Now he returned to the U.S. as a college student where he studied clarinet and conservatory, but he became interested in theater and dance as well, and those interests propelled him into a career in opera, first as a stage manager and then as an opera director. To say he's been busy these last few decades would be a gross understatement. <laughs> he's directed dozens of operas all over the country, staging work for some of the biggest and most prestigious opera companies, including the Lyric Opera in Chicago and the Santa Fe Opera. He's also been a professor of music, and he started his own company, in fact, to incubate and develop collaborative work by artists from different disciplines. I would have to say that based on his resume, he probably is not getting much sleep. Welcome to the Asian Voices podcast, Matthew. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Little sleep deprived, maybe? <laughs> um, yes, I'm always a little sleep deprived. Busy, but present. <laughs> well, to get our conversation going, I'd like to just ask you a really basic question for those of us who don't really know much about opera or the world of opera. What is it that an opera director does? And is that similar in any way to perhaps a director of film? Great question. Um, you know, before I delve into my role as an opera director, I usually like to tell people a little bit about what opera is and how it's a little different from some of the other art forms, because opera in essence, is a synthesis of all of the art forms. You know, music is is first sort of front and center. Um, singers are, are at the core of opera and they sing without microphones. So they sing acoustically into theaters for roughly 4,000 um, individual audience members. Um, opera also combines an orchestra, um, actors, dancers, the visual arts, storytelling uh, for an extremely large and epic scale experience um, that I think many find sometimes daunting, uh, but simultaneously very riveting and exciting and really taps right into your heartstrings because of that music. So as an opera director, I like to say that I'm one of two co-captains of the ship making the production possible. Um, and the co-captains being the stage director, myself, and then the conductor. So the conductor is responsible for all of the musical components of the opera, uh, works with the singers, works with the orchestra, and makes all the music that you hear happen. And then everything that you see happen on stage, all of the visual elements, as well as how the story unfolds um, through not only design, but through character and singer choices and interactions. Um, those are elements that I control. And so together, we basically um, shepherd how the story unfolds for audiences. I think that's a very good comprehensive explanation. 
I am wondering though, opera is often regarded as an art form that appeals to only to the elite, you know, and in this country, maybe a white elite. As a Japanese American artist, how were you able to find a place in this world? And did you encounter any resistance or racism as you were developing your career? You know, I first was introduced to opera at a very early age um, at the San Diego Opera. They had at the time um, mm. a, a program for students to come to the dress rehearsals. And so I saw many dress rehearsals and the magic of seeing it with other kids and also seeing the behind the scenes. They would take the curtain out during intermission and let you see mm. all of the technicians backstage moving the scenic pieces um, and cleaning and the singers moving to their costume changes was really, I think, the kernel for what eventually led to my opera directing career. But it was not without, of course, its hurdles because the classical arts, classical music, opera and ballet, as you mentioned, are often viewed as being sort of um, elite structures um, that take a lot of money to produce, but also a lot of money to um, engage with. I think the classical music has a lot more diversity seen in orchestras, but opera, I would say... I usually am, uh, for a lot of my career, was the only Asian in the room and sometimes the only person of color in the rehearsals or the companies that I was engaging with. For much of my career, I mean, I would say that really in any facet of life, especially in America, we will experience forms of microaggressions and racism. So have I experienced that within the industry? Yes. And, and in particular, associated around works of opera that are set in locations such as Butterflies set in Japan, uh, Pearl Fisher's is set in Ceylon, Turandot is, is set in sort of fantasized China. Those um, pieces and those settings are created by Westerners who never set foot in those countries. It was performed mm -hmm. by Caucasians, um, as we know, in yellow face um, for Caucasian audiences. Obviously, as opera wants to reach a broader array of audiences and a, a, a larger diversity of people, there has to be a sort of reimagining, a deconstruction of what these pieces represent to allow more people in the door to experience it without feeling othered. And that's not just opera, right? That is theater, that is a ballet, that's in all of the art forms. And so I think that for many years, I experienced racism where people would bow to me or try to speak Japanese because we were doing Butterfly. And I didn't really, I think, think too much of it because I often was very quiet in the rehearsal room and in much of my early years in opera, very quiet about where I wanted to be and what I saw opera could be. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I had more agency and power that I could actually have my voice be heard at the table. But that took, you know, at least 10 years to even get there. Okay, that makes sense. I do want to pick up on something that you said about um, 
singers playing the Asian characters in operas in what we call might call yellow face. I mean, we know in film and theater, it's no longer acceptable for a Caucasian actor to play a Black or Latinx or Asian character. It's deemed unacceptable. Um, what about the reverse? I've seen non-traditional casting where I've seen Hamlet played by a Black actor. So is there some difficulty in figuring out who makes a decision about who can play which characters based on ethnicity and race. Yes, and I would say that there are a huge number of conversations being had at the moment about that very conversation with people, I think, in in very different camps about how they feel who should be on stage representing these characters. I think at the moment we're in a pendulum swing, you know, where, where most of these roles, in particular in opera, have been performed by Caucasians, and there have been very few people of color in the room or a part of the art making process. And so the pendulum swing is headed towards an area where in order to allow access, in order to break the barriers and to create a setting where there is inclusion, well, these roles need to be played by Asians um, and that we need to completely uh, really dig into what is appropriation on stage and have those that are telling those stories be from those communities. Simultaneously, as we head towards that pendulum swing, we have to be careful that we don't pigeonhole all people of color to only participate in works of art that are about their culture. I have found, you know, as this, you know, pendulum swing has headed in that direction, right, I've gotten so many offers to direct Butterfly, Turned Out, and Pearl Fishers. Simultaneously, you know, being Asian is only one facet of my intersection of, of my identity. And so I would be, you know, quite disappointed if I was only asked to direct those works and never asked to direct any other operas. And I think that also it is good to sort of shake things up. It's good, you know, for example, with Shakespeare, what says that it has to be a specific race in some of the works that are a little bit more nondescript in terms of location, especially if they're shifted in terms of location. But Butterfly, for example, because it's so realistic, is set in Japan at a very specific time in history and to set it on the moon or set it in some completely different location to have no Asians be a part of it really then it isn't butterfly. Yeah, there are a lot of dimensions to that debate about casting along race and ethnicity lines and who is making those decisions these days and what parameters do we use or what criteria do we use. I want to talk a little bit about your family's history, Matthew. Your grandfather and his family were sent to a internment camp for Japanese citizens during World War II. How did that experience affect your family? And how does that affect your views as a person who is making art? Sadly, my grandparents passed away uh, before I was born. My father was actually born in an internment camp during World War II. And so many of the stories about that experience and what they experienced, I actually didn't fully know until much later in life. So I would say that the early parts of my life and upbringing, I didn't think so much about it. 
But once I lived in Asia and suddenly was part of the majority instead of a minority, and then I came back to the States and really was a third culture kid who, you know, had been raised in one culture that was outside of my parents, was American, was a foreigner in a foreign land coming back to America and viewed once again as a foreigner, even though I was American, I started to kind of have a deeper grasp on questioning what does it mean to be American and realizing that because of the internment, I think the idea of assimilating and being as American as possible was really important in my family's return from the camp back to Los Angeles. You know, I think that that immigrants, you know, I'm fourth generation Japanese, but there's always that tension of being caught between two cultures, two languages, two homes, possibly two continents. And those contradictions that exist in that while you're navigating promises in a country of freedom or equality, but actually conversely experiencing racism or feeling othered or that you're the perpetual foreigner, I think that in digging into my family's history in the internment camp, I actually have had a much more resonant connection to works that are about these topics. Um, But also, I think in working with singers and artists who are from around the world and from different cultures. And that has been a, become a, a very big passion of mine as an artist. So you think it's enhanced your sensitivity? I think so. Yeah. And I would say particularly when you're dealing with works that perhaps imagine what it's like to be the outsider or the person at the margins looking in. Right. And I would say that, I, you know, as an individual, I have always felt a little bit uh, as uh, on the outside. <laughs> I have never quite felt like I've belong, belonged anywhere. That, you know, in, in Singapore, I was an American or viewed as an American. I went to a British high school. I was the only American. I played the clarinet in the National Youth Orchestra and was the only foreigner, non-Singaporean in that youth orchestra coming back to the United States. Everyone thought I was a foreign exchange student (laughs) (laughs) coming into conservatory, but I was American and I was very confused. I also simultaneously, as I shifted into theater and into opera, I felt kind of like the other because in theater... Everyone has very specific views about opera being a certain thing. And I was a little ostracized for a time being uh, when I was uh, studying theater. And then in opera, then I'm, you know, for so much, I've been the only Asian or the first Asian to be doing some of the things that I'm doing. And so I have felt like I've been championing a lot of elements or navigating by myself. I belong to mm-hmm. all of these art forms. I belong to many cultures. Mm-hmm. I belong to many different facets of my identity. And simultaneously, if I was to only be in one of those settings, I would feel kind of like an outsider. I see. But because you're doing so many different things in so many different disciplines, yet you still make the point, though, that you felt many times you were the only one doing it. Did you feel it was important to find allies along the way? 
I guess because I've I love people, I love interpersonal relationships. That in any setting, I always found I guess allies or or communities. But yet within those communities, I still always felt a little like I didn't quite belong to all of the conversations or all of the experiences because I saw some of these experiences differently. I think that idea of seeing things differently or having a different perspective has actually really shaped my directing work, that I've embraced the fact that my artistry tends to be uh, uh, a confluence of East meets West. It is both minimal and complete mm-hmm. spectacle. It lives in this sort of liminal space. And for many years, I felt like I had to be something specific that I thought I knew other artists to be. And the way that everyone talked about artists that they admired, only to realize that I had to really dig into my unique voice and just allow that to resonate and to find connections through that voice with who, whomever I, I was with. Well, you talk about having a unique voice and your work has been praised as being very original and stylish and intelligent. What do you hope is the experience your opera audience will have that might be, I mean, a lot of times people think of opera as kind of stodgy and a little bit, um, constrained by the conventions of, oh, it's always been done this way. What do you bring to opera that um, you think might give audiences something different or fresher or more exciting? Yeah. You know, I always tell people to give opera a chance because one of the (laughs) things that's most amazing about it is that it can be very visceral the power of the sound and the story, you can physically feel the vibrations of the music. And there is something so magical about that as you're watching it with thousands of people. Of course, pre-pandemic, always full houses. And, And simultaneously, there's something about the beauty of the music that even if you don't understand the language, can completely transport you into other you know, memories and into something that's even more human and universal because it has no language. It's sort of language less. Um, And so I would say about my work in particular, because I believe in the transformative power of opera, because I believe that it can be so emotional, deeply emotional and visceral for audience members, I would say that I try to curate an experience where what you are seeing on stage directly links with the music that you are hearing so that there is a symbiosis and that I think makes you even more engaged, allows you to just be present for many hours because, of course, opera can be very long. And in some respects, because it's so long in a day and age where we're used to sort of quick um, social media hits and fixes and, and Netflix, there's something beautiful about allowing there to be space and time to be present, to feel and experience something that might be outside of your comfort zone. And I would also say that I like to push people's comfort zones. <laughs> I, I, I always hope that audiences are going to leave you know, having a greater awareness of themselves and their world, having a greater perspective than I think what they initially thought they were going to experience. 
um, and to and to have a moment that they remember. I'm definitely not about you know cookie cutter opera, mm-hmm. so I guess I don't I don't direct your traditional productions of these works that everyone knows. Boam is always done the same over and over and over. Tosca's done the same over and over and over. Um, but I sort of like to turn things on its head, bring the people who love the tradition in but allow people that have never experienced opera before to really find so much excitement in it. I think though, that's a tricky endeavor because if you reinvent something like La Boheme, some people will love the invention and the novelty, but the more conventional audiences may say, oh, I don't know. That's not what I'm used to. Oh, yes. How do you avoid alienating? Yeah, that happens all the time. Right, right. I mean, I think part (laughs) of it is is because I, I, you know, was really trained in the system and and was a part of many productions that were from the seventies and eighties that were brought back. I saw the tradition and I actually did love aspects of the tradition. So I think that even when I sort of I would say, you know, turn the perspective of a piece, you know, shift it, I always go back to the the tradition mm-hmm. and the heritage of where it comes from. And I want to honor that because I think it is important to the fabric of opera as much as it's important to the fabric of us as individuals, right? That we we can't ignore our heritage. We have to actually have it seep in. We have to have it allow it be a part of our our being. And then in essence, the result is even more holistic and synthesized. I want to pick up on something you just mentioned about how we have experiences that we want to synthesize very quickly now. I I call it, um, I think I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm going to speculate. We are so immersed now in this environment with digital media, right? And everything is very instant and quick. How do you make opera, which takes its time to tell a story, how do you appeal to what I call a generation of TikTok brains? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I you know what like I'm talking we're, about. We're in the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of in the, the early exploration of, of that because, because, you know, audiences are changing and people's behaviors are changing. I know that mine are changing. You know, I wasn't raised with a cell phone. I wasn't raised with all this technology. And yet it's easy to fall into these patterns Mm -hmm. and then to want instant gratification. I think part of it with opera is it's like the, what is it? The snag where you like, you know, cook someone and like pull them in. I think that is always the key. It's like finding that way to like hook someone really early on, pull them in, to keep their attention. Simultaneously, I have to say, you know, when I was a professor at the University of Michigan, I taught a course about engaging performances. It was for students who were not in the School of Music, who were not artists, who were in the university, they were football players and and scientists and doing all these other areas. And we explored what does it mean to engage art? I think that it is also totally okay for TikTokers to come in to be excited one moment and then completely bored the next. <laughs> you know that every experience is valid. Right. I don't think that it's you know does it, we we can't everyone's different in experiencing the art. Not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to be captivated every second. And I think that honoring that that's just how it is, I think is is kind of part of part of the process. 
Is there something you do that you think can actually make it more appealing to younger audiences? When I go to the opera or when I've been to the opera, I would say two thirds of the audience is probably over 60. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the first step is marketing. Mm-hmm. I think marketing is really key because that is the that is the hook. If you create incredible marketing on the front end, something that's highly enticing, highly visual, that has a story in it, and that seems really fascinating, and whether that's visual, you know, static marketing, or whether that is you know video um, commercials or or videos on social media, I think that's like the first step in but you know opera is interesting because opera is always a little bit behind the times (laughs) you know opera is always one step after Mm. the development of all the other forms in progression and so you know as theaters becoming really hip and their marketing's becoming really hip and everyone loves broadway and hamilton etc etc opera is like slowly figuring out how to be relevant um, but I actually think it's a lot of the same tools. Um, and really, I mean, I think that if a TikToker knew how absolutely bonkers some of these opera plots are, <laughs> I mean, it's like watching reality TV. You're like, oh my God, this person's poisoned one moment and then someone gets murdered. Oh no, no. Now they're back. They're alive again. You know, now they're, you know, enacting revenge. Oh my gosh, this person's in love with this person. Oh no, 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 she didn't. Now she's with someone else. I mean, it's like, it is really quite, yeah. you know, or, you know, I was directing an opera where like there is a character that's struck by lightning, <laughs> Nabucco and by Verity, there's poison, someone gets struck by lightning, someone does die, there's all these love interests, and it's, you know, and Babylon, the entire temple collapses. I mean, it's like the whole thing is completely insane. The music is, is really quite, you know, large and very loud mm-hmm. and, I, you know, it's it's just a matter of like having that hook so people realize, oh, wow, that is completely unusual. And we're not mm-hmm. trying to say this is realism. We're not trying to say we're going to watch, you know, people eat mm-hmm. dinner at a dining room table. No, no. This is, you know, drama on steroids. And, you know, it's as larger res- than life. Yes. Right? Yes. It's larger than life. So how do you hook people in through that? What operas are the most appealing to you in terms of trying to mount stage or present it? Do you like the more traditional tragedies, you know, love and death and homicide? Or do you like the farces? There's some operas that actually have quite a bit of sense of humor about it. Do you like more contemporary work? Which composers do you like? I think it. Uh, my answer will sway depending on my mood, <laughs> depending on sort of what's going on in life. I will say that that in conservatory, I was deeply engrossed in contemporary opera from, especially in America from 1950 onwards. I really was fascinated by by how story was being sort of cultivated, how cultures were being molded and and shaped through or like fused in opera and sort of what opera could be in a sort of non-traditional sense and also non-linear narrative sense. Um, Simultaneously, I have found that the classics are the classics for a reason. Bohem is really beautiful and incredible and it's a perfect length piece and it's about young people who are in love and who are poor, starving artists who are experiencing life. There's something really so magical about that as well. And I'm learning to love 
you know, certain repertory that, that I sometimes struggle with some of the bel canto um, operas. I sometimes struggle with some of the, the, you know, darker material, but I will say that I also used to, when I was younger, love all the tragedies. Yes. Yes. But as I get older and I feel like all I experience, all life is, is like tragic around me. Mm. Especially with everything that's been going on the past couple of years. Now I just want some levity. I actually just want a comedy. Sure. (laughs) I want a farce. I want want to laugh. I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, we're coming to the end of our time. So I want to ask you a very quick wrap up question. If you can make your response kind of quick. What advice or counsel do you have for younger people who are looking at a career in the arts, maybe even choosing fields where there aren't many role models, especially for people of color? I would say keep going. That they're on any path, every path is different. There are going to be hurdles and disappointments, but ultimately be true to yourself. Find your unique voice as an artist hold on to that and cherish it and walk into every project, every space as you um, and just keep going that, you know, we all need people building bridges as much as we need people to walk on the bridges. And so be a game changer, be the first and it's okay. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being a tremendous bridge builder. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank Matthew for joining us today. And to learn more about you and what you're doing, you are going to be, or you actually have started a new position at the Lyric Opera. How can we find out more about you? What websites would you like people to visit? Um, Anyone can visit my personal website, MatthewOzawa.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And my new position at the Lyric will be as the chief artistic administration officer overseeing all of the artistic planning processes and activities of Lyric Opera of Chicago. And uh, this is going to wrap up this edition of Asian Voices Radio. If you have any suggestions for future guests, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Also be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Asian Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our API community with a voice through media arts. If you'd like to support our program and make a donation, please visit AsianVoicesRadio.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sasha Fu. Please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices Radio show. Until then, take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.